You went now listening to British Birds, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases, serial killers, sometimes horror movies when we're in the mood. This week I have not a special guest, just a guest on the show. He is my friend. He is the tallest man I know to date. Never going to be beaten. Please welcome to the show my good friend from down south, Christian. Hi Bluesy, good to be back um, and yet still, still yet to meet a man taller than me. I can't describe how tall Christian is. In person, it's frightening. Yeah, and absolutely awful on a Ryanair flight. Well, you should, you know, get your money out of your pocket and spend a bit more on flights if you're going to complain about it. Yeah, the problem is, is the Ryanair tickets are so cheap. So if I pay £40 for a Ryanair ticket and then they say, do you want to go up to the wing seat? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And they say, oh, that would be be £25 each way. The upgrading to the wing seat actually costs more than the ticket. So, you know, tall man problems. The irony is, of course, Ryanair were debating bringing in standing seats, which for you would have been hunched over seats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have definitely added to my discomfort. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'm really glad to be back on the show. I think the last time I was on uh, your podcast was last January, I believe. Was that about right? I believe it was about 18 months ago. Listeners of the show have been here a while, might remember Christian told me the story of Patrick. McKay or Mackay, yep. Patrick David McKay, and he was uh, a nasty man. But this week we are going a little bit more European, I'm told. Yeah, so I wanted to take it in a different direction because um, following your show avidly, I see that a lot of them, you do some crossover of American killers and you do a lot of English killers. So I thought we'll go to a different part of the world today and uh, follow a story that is not as perhaps well known to your listeners. Lovely. And to confirm, I have not heard this story. If he has told me who it is about, I don't think you have, but I can't remember. So I know as much as you, dear listener, and I am thrilled to be taken on this true crime journey with a man who, by the way, has just finished his first novel. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been the last three years. I've been uh, very much inspired by true crime. I'm uh, quite an avid true crime follower and read a lot of crime fiction for the last three years. I've been crafting away and putting my sins down into a book and uh, I've come up with a with a first first draft of a novel which I'm currently editing and hopefully should be ready and uh, ready to send to publishers come September that's lovely I remember reading a few a few early drafts when you sort of maybe were a third or halfway through and it was interesting what I read do you want to give us a bit of a a brief outline of what the story is about before we get into the European murder. Yeah, absolutely. So my novel is um, it's a, your typical um, detective versus killer novel. But what I've done, I've taken a slightly different route. So it's set because I, I live in Shrewsbury in Shropshire, which is uh, an area known for its low crime rate. So it's set in a small little village um, in Shropshire. And it's this idea of this detective that's been put on a case to catch a serial killer roaming the hills of Shropshire. But to make it a little bit different, I've been including quite a few chapters on the serial killer's past because I think after listening to these true crime documentaries and yours and multiple um, odd podcasts and doing my own research, it seems like there are a number of quite infinitely complex reasons which turn somebody or turn to, or take somebody takes that path into becoming a mass murderer. So I've been including um, whole chapters on my serial killer's past and how he was brought up. Um, so it's quite it's quite a disturbing tale, quite dark, quite sinister. Um, but yeah, no, I've absolutely loved writing it, and I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing it with the world. Looking forward to reading it for sure. I'm sure when it gets picked up and published in physical form, we'll have you back on to have a bit of a discussion about what's going on there. That would be an absolute privilege. I'd love to come on and tell your readers a little bit more about the book. And if you play your cards right, Bluesy, if you play your cards right, you might get a, a signed copy. Wow. I'll give you a discount. What you should do is we could uh, we could give one away as a prize to That's people a who en- yeah, enter a competition a little, on the show. We could do a little quiz, couldn't we? Do some mm. ser- like some uh, some true crime questions, and the person who gets the highest result that'd be a guy like that. Yeah, they can get like a, a copy, a signed copy. Let's do it. Let's like bank it. that one for next time, lad. So on that bombshell, let's dive into this European murder story. 
So this story begins in the early 1900s. It's located in the Bavarian town of Groben, Germany. Victoria Gabrielle, a 35-year-old widow, lived on Hinterkaifeck farmstead. Surrounded by dense forests and farmland, the farm was remote and miles from the local town. Victoria, she lived with her two children, her daughter, Cazelia, seven, and her son, Joseph. Victoria's elder parents, Andres Gruber, and his wife, Cazelia, who has uh, the same name as the um, granddaughter, 72, she also lived out on the farm and they helped out. The family themselves were known to be immensely private. They didn't really engage in local community activities. They occasionally attended church. But apart from that, they liked to keep themselves to themselves and they weren't really interested in being a presence in the local community. Throughout the winter of 1922, the family went about their daily chores, grooming the horses, chopping firewood, feeding the livestock. The maid, she would keep on top of the cleaning and preparing family meals, anything that wasn't related to running the actual farm. Because it was winter, they weren't out in the fields doing the crops. They were mainly sticking to doing winter-related activities. And as the long winter evenings dragged on, the maid, who unfortunately I couldn't find a name for, started to notice things around the house that none of the other family members seemed to observe. At times, when the maid knew the rest of the family were outside going about their chores, she'd hear footsteps coming from the attic. She asked Andreas if anyone had been up there, to which he replied, no one's been up there in months. I thought for some reason you were going to say that in German. Why? I don't know. I thought you were going to say that in German. I'm afraid. I'm afraid my German uh, would be atrocious. So I'm just going to stick Nick to the English. Nick so good. Nick so good. Carry Nick on. so good. A few days passed, and the maid started to hear muffled voices coming from above. She couldn't make out what the incoherent voices were saying, but she was understandably very unnerved. So she went to the family again, and this time addressed everyone and said, "Is anybody up there?" Uh, the family took her unease quite seriously this time apart from what considered compared to the last time when Andreas just dismissed it. And they all went up to the attic to investigate. Nobody was up there and there wasn't a single sign a human had been up there at all. I believe the room was quite expansive, just like attics are. There's not many places to hide in an attic, is there? They're usually no. quite large rooms, haven't got many like doors or compartments, do they? No. So they searched this attic thoroughly, absolutely nothing. So you can imagine by this point, especially the fact there's young children in the house, there's a sense of unease which is growing gradually. Unfortunately, the maid's bedroom was located directly under the attic. So night after night, as the weeks dragged on, she complained of hearing footsteps and more muffled voices and banging coming from upstairs. On multiple occasions, she had voiced her concerns to Andres the patriarch of the family, who would storm up to the attic, his patience, I'm sure, growing thin, to find absolutely no one there. I personally think in that scenario, the family probably thought she was delusional. Yeah, especially if she's the only one hearing it, then it's yeah. understandable that he's going to get frustrated. Yeah, and, and you know, she keeps voicing this and they're probably thinking, you know, this is scaring the kids. This is, yeah. uh, you know, and they probably started getting a bit angry. So eventually... The maid's paranoia grew far too much to handle, so she quit her job and actually moved out. Now, you can imagine, for being 1922, I'm sure, you know, well, that was probably just after, yeah, just after World War I, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm sure that jobs were few and far between. So when I found out this bit of research, I thought for her to quit her job and to leave because she's hearing things in the attic, I thought then that most likely she probably heard them. What do you think? It's a bold move, isn't it? Especially when she's living there. It must be difficult to find somewhere to live that's affordable without living with a family. So then you have to source a new family who trusts you and move you in, etc. So Yeah. You always think this, don't you? When you see possession films and horror films, you think, why don't they just move? But they always end up staying in the house. But as we know, Bluesy, possessions don't possess the house, they possess the people. When Andres asked the maid why she was resigning, 
She stated, I can't sleep in that room. There's somebody up there. Somebody is moving around in the attic, which sends chills down my spine because the idea is pretty disconcerting to think that somebody is, you know, slinking around your house at night without you knowing. Why are ghosts nocturnal? I think maybe that's for another podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagine the stuff we chat about if we go for a beer, that's one of the questions I just come out with. Why are ghosts nocturnal? No context. Maybe we could put that out to your listeners. (laughs) So I can imagine the maid having quit due to the strange sounds coming from upstairs must have increased the family's tension and the feeling of paranoia to a greater height because it's one thing a maid saying I'm quitting because I'm not getting paid enough but to quit because you're hearing footsteps in the attic must have been a pretty terrifying revelation. I imagine people resigning from the role for any reason back then was probably quite rare. Yeah exactly yeah so you can imagine her her mental state uh, must have been pretty fragile. So the Gruber family unfortunately, were unable to find a maid for months and consequently had to pick up many of the chores around the house. Now, I'm going to send you a picture of the um, at the end of this episode of the farmstead. It's a very spooky-looking building and it's absolutely massive. So your, your readers, your listeners can actually see that. But the farm is huge. So, of course, this put an enormous amount of strain on the family because really you only had a few people that could help out around the farm because some of the kids were under the age of seven. So... The housework started to pile up. The chores started to pile up. But unfortunately, housework wasn't the only thing increasing the pressure among this family. Initially, after the maid left, no one reported hearing anything coming in the attic, coming from the walls. But one night over dinner, Andreas revealed something pretty disturbing. He informed them that he had heard the noises the whole time and had decided to keep that from the family in order not to freak them out. What? Yeah. I mean, what a strange move. That's a... Hmm, okay. So you can imagine Andres, who is the grandfather, imagine having heard all of that and trying to keep it under wraps. So he must have been at a real height of paranoia, really, because he's hearing these footsteps. But I mean, to deny the maid and say you're making it all up is pretty brutal. Because it's, it's what, in this day and age, which I'm sure they didn't have back in 1922, that is gaslighting, isn't it? Saying that you're crazy. <laughs> it is, yeah. I imagine back then, bear in mind this is 100 years ago, and people who had housekeepers probably saw themselves as their superiors. So perhaps he didn't want to agree with the housekeeper or the maid. Yeah. yeah. A bit to be on the same, especially if he's a grandfather in 1922. That means what, late 1800s? Yeah. Mid, mid to late 1800s he was born. Yeah. That's probably the reason why. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, actually. You're right. The social hierarchy is very different, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sure they didn't give maids much voice in the family unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Obviously disturbed by this pretty horrific revelation, the Gruber family decided to get together and search the house top to bottom. As you would, you know, if somebody's saying there might be someone here, search it top to bottom. So they scoured the house for hours and hours, but they found absolutely nothing. Adding to their unease, Victoria discovered a set of house keys had gone missing. She went around the whole house and asked everyone had they got their house keys, and she found out that one set that usually hung up, I imagine, by the door had completely disappeared. So with Andre's disclosure playing on their minds, basically paranoia started to spread through the house like wildfire. They all started hearing distorted voices coming through the walls. Tapping and loud bangs echoed from the old farmhouse at the dead of night, and they crept around the house on eggshells, I'm sure terrified that somebody was living in their house. That is terrifying. Isn't it? And the fact they lived in this state of complete and utter frayed nerves and, and extreme paranoia and it's almost what, when I did, found this research, what struck me was psychologically, as soon as the head of the house says, yeah, I heard it, they all hear it. Hmm. Which to me is something more psychosomatic. Do you know what I mean? It's more like, oh, now he hears it. So maybe they were hearing stuff and they were putting out their mind. Maybe they were. Hmm. It's bizarre to think that, let's say, for argument's sake, every one of them 
when the maid said, I heard footsteps last night. Every one of them individually thought, shit, I did too. Because no one else owned up, they all just kept quiet to the detriment of everyone. Yeah, that group mentality. If one person, if Andres around that table said, so did I, I think it's quite likely they all would have said, yeah, me too. But you're right, because it's coming from the maid who maybe was socially, you wouldn't listen to her opinion anyway in that time. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're right. So things escalated pretty quickly. On one snowy evening, Victoria ran downstairs screaming her daughter's name. Kazelia had gone missing. After searching for hours, they found her huddled under an oak tree in the neighbouring forest. After bringing her back to the house, they questioned her, but she claimed she could not remember how she got there and why she had left the house. So she is seven years old and she went missing for hours. And it was snowing outside. And you imagine when they found her, she was probably just in a nightie. And she was cuddled up under an oak tree. And she went into some sort of strange delirium where she couldn't remember how she got there or why she was there. What do you make of that? I think as a father to a kid a little bit younger than that, it's hard sometimes to get the truth out of a child. They will often... Especially when stressed or in this situation, she'll be panicked to say rationally, okay, tell me what happened out there. It's not like asking an adult the same question. Mm. The default response from a kid is, I don't know, especially if it's something scary or if they've been taken, let's say, by someone who says, say anything and I'll kill you, for example. And it could have been that. It could have been, it could have been either she slept, walked and walked out the house or somebody could have taken her. Yeah. If they did, though, why leave her there? Yeah. But my point is, the long and short is, it's hard sometimes to get a rational response for a kid to just walk you through the steps of what happened, even if they remember. Exactly. And I think, I mean, in this case, there are so many unanswered questions, and this is just one of many. So another thing that was another series of events that started to unnerve the family even more than they already were was that evening. Andreas found a newspaper at the farm that didn't belong to anyone that lived there. Now, in my first thought, I thought, how did he know? But if you think about it, maybe back then, again, in terms of you know social norms, he was probably the only person that read newspapers. You know, he was the only man in the house, and he was probably the only one that had a subscription to newspapers or had newspapers delivered. So I think he knew pretty categorically what he reads. It's not like in today's day and age where you get, you know, free local newspapers delivered a week and you get all mail, this, that and the other. This is 1922, I'm sure. And he's on a farmstead in the middle of nowhere. So he probably had to go into town to get his newspapers. I'm sure there wasn't a local news round in the middle of nowhere. So to find that discovery and to find a newspaper on your kitchen table that you've never seen before and you know nobody in the family has bought, it's pretty scary stuff. It's scary, and it's also ridiculously careless from whomever purchased that newspaper. But maybe they would do it on purpose to try and freak them out. Maybe. But doesn't that, pretend, depending on what we think the outcome is, doesn't that defy the point of being hidden? Or do they get the thrill out of freaking these people out? Well, once we've read the whole case, you can be the judge. So two more alarming events occurred in the next few weeks. The Gruber family discovered someone had tried to break into the tool shed. There were really deep gashes in the metal from someone trying to hack away at it at a sharp object. Now, first thing I thought is, how on earth did someone not hear that? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? If you were doing that at the dead of night, hacking, and there were actually gashes in the metal, surely that would make some noise. It would, but again, are we thinking back to the whole group mentality thing of... Unless head of the household says something, we keep our mouths quiet. Because what we're not knowing is the deep background of how this family was run behind closed doors. It may have been a case of don't speak unless spoken to. Free will is limited, for example. Well, I've got some more information at the end of the case. I'm going to read you that will shed some light on how the family's been raised. So I will go into that. Jump in the gun. Yeah, I just don't don't want to break the narrative and confuse. Yeah, we'll go on to that. Okay, so on one evening, the snow was coming down really heavy and Andreas went out to fetch some firewood. No one had been out on the farm that evening for the last few hours. 
And Andreas was horrified to find a set of footprints in the snow leading up to the farm. But when he followed them, this is the really chilling part, there were none leading away. And that bit really creeped me out. Because if you think about it, this idea that whoever this is, whatever this is, it's in the house with them. And no matter how much they search, they cannot find this entity, this person, but they're still seeing signs that somebody is in there with them and somebody is waiting for them. Waiting for what? That's creepy. It really is, isn't it? And and he, uh, so he followed the footsteps to the origin of where they came from, the one track of footsteps, and they just led off into the forest. There was no like obvious origin. They didn't go off into a village. They just led into the depths of the forest and stopped abruptly. Right. Weird. It's very strange. So instead of going to the police, Andres, who I believe was quite a proud man, contacted their neighbour. And it was the only neighbour they had for miles. And his name was Lorenz. Lorenz was a farmer. And Lorenz had been dating Andres' daughter, Victoria, a few months prior. And they had broken up. We're going to come back more onto Lorenz later. But just remember that for now. Okay. So after telling Lorenz everything, he seemed concerned. And get this, he offered Andres a rifle to protect his family. And Andres refused. And I have absolutely no idea why. Surely in that respect, all of those chain of events are happening. The first thing you'd think is, I need to protect my family. But he declined the firearm. Maybe he couldn't use a firearm. Is the only thing I can think of as to why. Because if someone offered me a gun, I wouldn't have a clue how to use it. But he's a farmer. That's what didn't match up in my eyes. Would he not have his own gun, though, in that case? It didn't mention anything in the case files. That could be could be why. That's logical. I don't need one, Billy. I've got a shotgun. I'd say that's more logical than him turning it down for, oh, I don't think I'll need it. You know, if you see the yeah. footsteps and the newspaper. <laughs> I'm not that concerned yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I think the footsteps would be enough to go to the police. I would go to the police if I saw that, coupled with someone breaking into your shed and the newspaper. You'd at least want to log it with the police. But he strikes me as quite, Andreas strikes me as quite a proud man. So he probably didn't. Yeah. I can sort this out, kind of. Yeah. And the fact, like, he wasn't a big part of the community, he didn't really know anyone, didn't talk to anyone. I imagine that he just wanted to man up, as they should say. So shortly after, they employed a new maid. So on March the 31st, 1922, Maria Bormengarter arrived on the farm and immediately got to work. Although they were overjoyed to finally have some respite for the demanding chores, the arrival of this maid brought tragedy and misery on a horrifying scale to this family. On the very same day, somebody managed to lure each member of the family to the barn one by one, where they were beaten to death with a mattock. And a mattock is essentially a large pickaxe with a more weighted blade. One thing the police noticed was the attack was extremely brutal. In particular, Andres' body was caked with blood. His cheekbones protruded through shredded flesh. Victoria's skull had been completely smashed and there were nine star-shaped wounds on her head. Her face had been hit with a blunt object. Perhaps the most saddening part about this case was the death of young Cazelia. It was found that the seven-year-old was actually alive for a number of hours and witnessed the slaughtering of her family. And this is based on the fact that she actually pulled some of her own hair out as she died and watched the slaughter. After these family members had been murdered, the killer moved into the house and proceeded to deal with Joseph and Maria, the young boy and the maid. Autopsies later revealed that all of the victims had been struck in the head multiple times by the same object, other than Joseph, who'd been killed by a single blow to the head. The story will continue after these quick messages. 
And now, back to the story. Now, the bodies weren't discovered for another four days after the murder. The family had missed church. That's the only thing they did in the village is go to church. And young Cassilia had missed school. Multiple people stopped by the Hinterkaifeck farmstead to call on the family, but were unable to get someone to answer the door. However, some of the neighbours saw smoke coming from the chimney, and other people stopped by and said that they could see a figure through the window. So they thought nothing of it. They thought the Gruber family would just be in their usual antisocial self because when they stopped by, they saw somebody in the window. It was on April the 4th, 1922, that a repairman showed up on the farmstead. I think there was something that needed fixing that had been booked in. He tried to get into the house, but failed. And during his attempt, he realised the front and back doors were locked and he could hear the dog barking from inside the house. On the way off the property, he realised the barn door was wide open and the dog was tied out near the barn. He informed the neighbour, Lorenz, and went on his way, so he didn't investigate further. Now, this is the point when Lorenz, the neighbour, comes in to investigate and check on the family. When he entered the barn, he found that the four bodies had been stacked on top of each other and covered with hay. He then went inside the home and discovered the two extra bodies. What is more, even more disturbing about this case is that there's evidence that whoever committed these atrocities actually stayed in the house for four days after the murders, cooked, cleaned, lit the fire, and even fed the family dog. Jesus. A nice light story for my listeners. Christ. So, yeah, if we before we go into suspects, what do you make of that, Bluesy? I mean, first thing I thought was, how did somebody lure them to the barn? That was a bit that was quite disturbing. How were they lured to the barn and then systematically slaughtered? What's that based on, though? Because potentially they could all have been in the barn at the same time and just killed one by one. The only thing that makes sense is that one person says, oh, I'm just nipping out to the barn. And then half an hour later, they think, didn't think he go to the barn a bit ago. I'll just go check on him. And that chain of events kept happening. That's the only. Yeah, that could, have been, that could have been the case. But they know from the autopsies that happened at a certain time. They know that happened quite late at night, I believe. So it wouldn't have been the family gathering in the barn just for a social okay. occasion or to go and feed the animals. They were somehow, even if it was one of them, somehow they were taken to the barn. But the brutal nature of the tax, the fact that this killer used a pickaxe and systematically managed to kill all four of them, the poor young girl watching and saving her for last has such a brutality to it that for me immediately I thought this has got to be personal Mm. yeah because that indicates that they know how old everyone is basically yeah and to yeah I mean brutalizing a whole family is terrible in itself but to make the youngest daughter watch and then kill her after and if you think as well that poor maid on her first shift, it was the first day of her shift, replacement made. She got murdered within probably 12 hours of working for the Grubers just by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So do we think then, the new maid coming in, it's awfully convenient that that happened to be the day that they were all slaughtered? It is odd. It's definitely peculiar, the timing. Is it a coincidence or not? Well, maybe. Let's say, for example, it's someone they know. Let's say it's the neighbour. Lorenz, right? Yeah. He knows what's going on in that house because if he's in and out all the time, if it is him, whoever it may be, he knows that the old housekeeper was giving the game away. She's gone now. So the housekeeper's out of the picture for a while. Mm. I can really mess with this family now. But as soon as a new housekeeper comes in, it might have been more difficult to get in. Because when there's a housekeeper there or a maid, I imagine even when the family's out, they're in doing the work here, there, and everywhere, eyes everywhere. With a maid out of the picture for that brief period, that few-month period, it could have been easier for someone to enter and leave as they pleased. Yeah. With a new one coming in, they might have thought, well, that's the end of that. Yeah. If I'm going to do it, I'll do it now. Yeah, rather than stop them just 
killed everyone. Well, so we'll come on now. Unfortunately, to your listeners' frustration, this is an unsolved murder case. So even though this was 100 years ago, they've done an enormous amount of investigative work on this case. They've interviewed over 100 people. They've had multiple suspects, but never enough concrete evidence to find the killer, which, considering how many people died, is quite shocking. You know, any murder is tragic, but when a whole family is annihilated in such a grotesque way, the fact that this person was let off scot-free and was still out there is pretty chilling. So what we'll do is we'll go through the suspects that I found um, and we'll just discuss them. So Mm -hmm. the chief suspect from my research is, you guessed it, the neighbour, Lorenz. Now, I'll tell you a bit about the neighbour. Lorenz's wife died in 1918. And in the very same year, between those months of August and December, Lorenz started an intimate relationship with Victoria. Mm -hmm. So he moved on very quick. In 1919, Victoria gave birth to her son, Joseph. She claimed Lorenz was the father. At the time, Lorenz agreed with these claims, and he once even said that he wanted to marry Victoria because he was the father, absolutely, and he wanted to raise that child. But then interestingly, at other times, Lorenz spun that narrative and was actually one of the people noted to be spreading rumours around the villages that Joseph was actually the product of an ancestral relationship between Victoria and her dad, Andres. Now, this is when it gets really messed up. After doing some research, I've discovered that Andres and Victoria were taken to court and trialed with incest and found guilty. Wow. They actually served time. Andres got a year, Victoria got a month. They were having an incestuous relationship, Andres and Victoria. Father and daughter. Yeah. Wow. So you can imagine after that trial, which would have been very public back then, what the village thought of the Gruber family. That kind of opens up the suspect list, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because they probably thought it was completely abhorrent and especially back in 1922, when I'm sure it was very, you know, church-going, very um, conservative families. And you've got this family that live on a creepy farm that don't come into town unless to go to church and have been proven to be having an incestuous relationship. Imagine what the society's views of them would have been like. It's not good. Absolutely not. Not long before the murders took place... Victoria had actually told Lorenz she was going to sue him for money because she needed money for their son. Victoria was convinced it was their son. And Lorenz was nowhere near as well off as the Grubers. But Victoria, I don't know why, but found something to sue him over. Turned around and said to Lorenz, you're not paying child support. I'm going to sue you and get money to raise our son. It was reported that Lorenz was really upset about this because the Grubers were quite well off and Lorenz was nowhere near as moneyed as that family. So he was upset she was going to sue him for money and he didn't have much money to give. So there's another element to the story. Okay. To further the idea that Lorenz may have committed this murder, Lorenz was the one that discovered the bodies. When the neighbour found the stack of four bodies in the barn, what's one thing, Bluesy, you would never do at a crime scene if you found a body? Touch anything. Touch anything, and particularly the bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Lorenz immediately began to unstack the mangled bodies, touching each of them, claiming he was looking for his son, Joseph. It was after Lorenz didn't find Joseph in the barn, he went into the house and discovered the last two bodies. I mean, how odd is that? Objectively, yes. Yeah. But heat of the moment, Yeah. I can kind of understand it. Yeah, I agree, because if he thought this was that Joseph was his son and he's seeing the mum and the grandparents lying there, you know, mutilated, maybe your reaction would be, to look through and try and find your son. 
Yeah. The question is, was he worried about Joseph or was he trying to cover his tracks and create a reason as to why he touched the bodies and the investig- so the investigators cannot determine evidence against him? So he's almost intentionally tainting the crime scene. Yeah. So that that's why evidence of me is on the bodies, because I did that. And presumably, you'll know more this, about this than me, they had fingerprinting back then. It might have been an archaic form, but did they have... I believe so. It's, I think mainly fingerprint evidence and stuff like handwriting evidence was how they mainly caught people back in those days, far, far, far before DNA and probably before fibres and all that kind of stuff as well, I imagine... I could be wrong, but I think it was mainly fingerprints, even if it wasn't. It's an old form of it, like you say. Yeah, so, you know, the more sinister thought is that he did that intentionally to rule himself out. Because if he admits that, if he goes, yeah, out of passion, I touched the bodies, then they, even if the evidence was on the bodies before he went into the barn, he's just covered his tracks, hasn't he? Yeah. So before we go on to the next suspects, what do you think the likelihood of it being Mr. Lorenz? I'm sitting up at about about 85, 90%. But why would he murder his own son? That's the bit that doesn't match up for me. And in such a brutal way, what kind of person has got it take to literally mutilate your son? The fact that he was killed in such a brutal way compared to perhaps some of the others, mm. maybe that is further justification that this kid was such, almost like a bone of contention, just yeah. so much resentment held in this kid innocent kid it's not his fault this kid was the bane of his life in a sense because he thought it was his and it turns out that he believes it was incestuous Mm. kind of as a crime of passion it does kind of make sense that it would be a bit more brutal on this kid who was it wasn't it is he mine is he not absolutely i think you've got a good point there another uh group of suspects um because like you said there must have been many people in the village that were appalled by what was going on in that farm. So there are other players that have been looked into. So almost 30 years after the Hinterkaifeck murders, it seemed that the case might have actually been solved because a woman named Crescentia told the priest, uh, told a priest whose name was Anton Huber on her deathbed that the two, there had been two brothers responsible for the grisly slaughter that took place on the farmstead. So she said her own two brothers, apologies, her own two brothers were the ones that killed the family. The men in question were called Adolf and Anton Gump. So Detective Inspector Reingruber made Adolf a potential suspect in 1922 because he was actually suspected and previously taken part in killing nine local men in the village. So he already had an active investigation going against his name for killing nine men. So he was subsequently arrested further. By the time he was named as the suspect and processed, coincidentally, he passed away. So by the time the actual inspector got to go and think, okay, we've got our man, let's go and arrest him, he passed away. No joy. Dead end. So the prosecutor then turned to the brother, Anton, based on the evidence given by the sister. Anton was released shortly after, as they had little to hold him on. Several years' investigation, Anton was cleared of any involvement in the murders due to complete lack of evidence, because you cannot prosecute someone on hearsay, can you? Just because the sister said, he might have done it, I know they did it, there was, after years of investigation against Anton, there wasn't a single bit of evidence proving that he was guilty. Mm, I'm not buying that one. Nope, neither am I. And the last one, even more far-fetched, this one um, is more humorous than anything. It was aliens. It was apparently (laughs) Victoria's dead husband. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so apparently Victoria's husband died in the trenches in World War I, but apparently he had not died and for whatever reason had come back to Hinterkaifuck years later to commit the crime because apparently he was suffering from PTSD and the uh, war had turned him into a uh, maniac. However, there are various reports from other soldiers who saw Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel, die in the trenches. So cannot be true. 
even though some people still believe it and say that the soldiers were making it up. The police ruled out robbery as a motive because there were large sums of cash found on the farm and decided it was a crime of passion. What's even more odd about this case is they did an autopsy on the family and actually examined the heads and removed the heads to be studied. And the heads were lost permanently in the chaos of World War II. So the poor family were buried headless, which is just an awful image to end such an awful case. Jesus. The crime shook the neighbouring community, but no one was ever charged with the crime to this day. The case remains unsolved. And the tragic truth is that the case will probably never be solved. And it's almost a century old, and there's very little evidence which survived in the war. And as most unsolved cases, it seems that the Hinterkaifeck murders may have been committed by someone that hasn't been mentioned in this podcast or by anyone in general, although there are a huge amount of theories pertaining to it. Maybe it was that dog. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it appears that um, it is uh, one of those grisly unsolved cases that we are never going to find out who committed these brutal murders. Do you think that it was likely someone that's not been mentioned, or do you think Lorenz is your top suspect? I think it was Lorenz, to be honest. The only thing I don't understand is why bother with all the creepy footsteps in the attic and stuff? Why torment them for like six months? I don't know. Was he sneaking, trying to get a view of his kid, or like a peeping Tom? Do you think he was so psychologically disturbed that he wanted to try and terrify them. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty brutal. Killing a family or killing anyone's pretty brutal, but to torment them and to make them go through six months of psychological abuse and, you know, extreme paranoia and everything that comes with that, it goes past sinister, doesn't it? Maybe he was rooting around the attic trying to get evidence of the kid being his or if he was born out of incest... Could have been trying to search for something. But then the footsteps to and from the forest is a bit weird. And perhaps if you think about it, maybe maybe he wanted, like you said, to get clarification that there was an incestuous relationship between Andres and Victoria. Mm. That whole peeping Tom theory. Maybe he was there watching these moments happen because... The disturbing truth is there's probably some really messed up stuff going between dad and daughter. And could he have been there witnessing it? And that would have been angering him as time goes on? That could have been the catalyst. He might have not seen anything until that one fateful day. One thing I did read um, was that when the police went up to the attic, they did actually find human excrement. (laughs) I don't know why that makes me laugh. Well, I was a bit disappointed because up until I read that, I thought it could have been paranormal. I mean, ghosts notoriously don't shit. Yeah. (laughs) Very good house guests. So I was, was, when I was reading it, I was really enjoying the fact that there could have been some entity in this house, something disturbing that was causing these sounds and that was haunting the house. Yeah. But as the case went on, I think it's very evident that there was somebody in the house stalking them. Not just shit, human shit. Yeah, there was... (laughs) Human, yeah, there was a massive turd in the attic. <laughs> All the hairs that were stood up on my end disappeared when you said that. It's just some guy who shits like the rest of us. Shits in a bucket. Well, it's, and also the fact that this poor family couldn't even be buried in the proper way and that their bodies were dismembered well, for an autopsy and their heads lost. It's almost like a final injustice, isn't it? Yeah, it's... I don't get how the heads were lost. That confuses me because between 1922 and World War Two, there's what 17 years. I reckon because the Nazis disrupted so much in Germany, didn't they? Mm. I reckon it was probably they just completely disrupted police forces, local police forces around the whole of Germany and Bavaria. And maybe they were destroyed. Maybe they were. Why? Why would you remove all of their heads for analysis, and what keep them in a laboratory for over a decade? It just says here the heads were removed to be studied 
in autopsy. I haven't heard of people chopping, you know, removing the head for autopsy. What can that tell you? Maybe I reckon it was because their skulls were smashed in to such an extent. Because, mm. you know, this, the the weapon, if you Google a mattock, it's pretty savage. The weapon they use, that this individual used to kill the family, is like a, a really chunky pickaxe with a really heavy blade, on, with a sharp blade on one side and a kind of spade-like shape on the other. Okay. And, yeah, and, and he, so maybe because the, the skulls were smashed beyond recognition, they had to do a kind of microscopic study on the heads. That's all I can think of. Okay. It's almost like an axe, but one of the axe heads is turned 45 yeah. degrees, 90 degrees, whatever it is. Yeah. And also, do you know what I found really, what I found really disturbing, which I think we can, should discuss, is the staying in the house afterwards. A lot of killers do that, though. Your Patrick McKay did that. Yeah, he slept he? in the bed, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. he slept in the bed. I think that's just got to be a power move, hasn't it? I mean, to to you or to you or I, the idea of staying in a house where above you is a two-year-old with their head smashed in, and in a barn there's four bodies, I just think is such a disturbing thought that you've got these mangled bodies all bloodied and beaten, and that that I think the fact that he stayed in the house shows that it did not that this character was psychopathic that had because there can be you know the traits of a psychopath you know a complete lack of empathy and this callousness this coldness i don't think your average pop crime of passion let's say you take somebody that's of sane mind yeah i was going to say you but you're not of sane mind so let's take someone (laughs) wow okay let's take someone of sane (laughs) mind if somebody of sane mind had been pushed to beyond recognition because they thought somebody else is raising my son and that person is having an incestuous relationship with the mother of my child. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. And say that person had the right parameters to be pushed to go and commit an atrocity like this. A sane mind would not stay in the house, would be so disgusted and overcome with what they've done with the literal blood on their hands. They would, for one, leave immediately and two, probably end up doing something, you know, either hand themselves in or taking their own life. Yeah. So I think it shows that whoever committed this crime had 100% had psychopathic tendencies. Oh, for sure. Without question. I don't think we can look past the neighbour, to be honest. There's too many coincidences, too many red flags for it to be anyone else. And he is the prime suspect, but I'm just, I'm surprised they couldn't find any concrete evidence on him. Because he was the prime, he was the prime suspect throughout the whole of the investigation, but yet they couldn't find anything on him. Wow! So that is the that is if you want to, there's there's much more research. There is actually a website that I'll share with you, Bluesy, which is very disturbing. It's the original German police report, and it's in German, but Google translates it, and they've actually got the pictures of the bodies stacked up. Wow! It's horrible. So I wouldn't look at that image before bed to your listeners because it will disturb you. But um, I'll send you the website if any of your listeners want to investigate further, because it's certainly one that when I did the research, it chilled me to the bone. Because when it's an unsolved murder, it just gives you the creeps, doesn't it? Yeah. I think, who did it? There's this. It's almost like there's this menacing, there's this cloud hanging over the case, where, you know, when you do your podcast, we find out who the murderer is, and they usually end up in prison or dead. In England, mostly in prison. In America, mostly dead. But, um, you know, we find out what happens to them. But when you don't know who it is, that adds a level of mystery to it that just makes the hairs on the back of your arm stand up. I think that's why unsolved crimes are so popular. It's because everyone can have an opinion on it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I think, you know, the fact that we can never find out who it was because most of the evidence is destroyed. And, you know, they've, they've, got, they've removed the farm now. They, they demolished it, I think, 30, 40 years later. So all of the evidence has, or the farm, what used to be there has all been demolished. And uh, it is a case that will forever, I think, haunt the people, especially living in that part of Bavaria. It will, because whoever did it will long since have passed away, I imagine. Yep. And the families, you know, the family that's, well, no one survived. The people that knew and extended and distant family will never, ever get closure of who did that. 
and the family of the maid, you know, she was murdered as well. She needs to be considered. So it's a, it's a pretty chilling one. A very dark cloud hangs above the land where that Bavarian farm once stood. Well, if there was ever going to be a paranormal visiting, I think it would be in that house, you know. It's similar to like, what is it, the Amityville Horror one. Yeah. You know, that house, definitely there was some scary stuff going on there. And I can imagine this house, if it wasn't demolished, I can imagine it must have had some pretty, and that barn especially, I, w- I would not want to go into that barn. Because the you know definitely not no. regardless if you believe in paranormal stuff the energy you can feel the energy of a room you know you can feel that something's happened there and I think if you walked into a place where a family had been disposed with disposed of in such a callous way I think there'd be some real dodgy vibes going on there. Safe to say, if there were any cows in the barn, they would be producing milk that is rather sour, <laughs> rancid. I wouldn't put that on my cocoa pops. <laughs> oh god! But the cattle was untouched. The cattle was untouched. Wow! They were the only witnesses, actually. <laughs> and some might say they were quite moved. So a bit too soon. Wow! Tough crowd. So let's, uh, <laughs> with that horrible, horrible joke that fell on deaf ears, now out in the open. Let's finish up because that was a, a wonderfully dark, morbid in thrilling story told by an aspiring writer who one day you'll think what was he on when he was upcoming he was on British Murders twice well I aim to disturb and I hope some of your viewers and some of your listeners have been quite uh, you know have started to ponder who it might be and if you do do any extra research please send it in to Bluesy and myself I'd love to hear what other people have to say on this matter and who they think it was yeah. Let's open this up to your uh, listenership and see, get some theories on who you reckon it is. Absolutely. Let's leave some comments. Let's get in touch on social media. Let me know. That would be excellent. And I will let Christian know who you think the killer is. And thank you very much for having me on your show, Bluesy. We will do this again um, at some point in the next year. It's been a pleasure and a privilege as always, sir. You are very welcome. And it's been an honour hosting you. It saves me a job. I don't have to prepare very hard for these i just have to look at you for an hour which is tough but doable (laughs) (laughs) so we will leave it there i hope you all enjoyed that episode again with christian we'll have him back on probably the next time we'll have him on hopefully is when his book is fully edited and picked up by a publisher ready to be printed and we'll discuss your book when it's due to come out but from me stuart blues and british murders until next time cheerio